Let's pray. Father, if Jesus never did anything else for us for the rest of our lives, may it be true that we could say, praise the King who bore my sin, took my place when I stood condemned. We are so unworthy to be able to say such things. We are so indebted to Christ for the work that he has done on our behalf. I'm so unworthy to stand and preach from this book. We're so unworthy to have the opportunity to hear words from this book, and yet here we are. Father, I pray as people are meditating on eternal life, on your holiness, on our falling short of your holiness, I pray as these things are being meditated on, Lord, that, that you would be at work in the life of an unbeliever here, possibly, Lord, I pray that you would draw men to yourself. That we, would, that we would see the fulfillment of all that the Father gives to me will come and I will not cast out any of them. For believers, Lord, I pray that you would edify their hearts, strengthen their resolve, Cause them to worship you out of the work that you have done on their behalf. Are you, a, you are a good father. Thank you for being good to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Mark chapter 10. I just threw you a curveball. Mark 10, not Genesis. If you've been with us recently, you know that we, I most often preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and for weeks now, I've been preaching through the book of Genesis, except for this morning, we're taking a one-week break and looking at Mark chapter 10. We'll be starting in verse 13, Mark 10, verse 13. I want to tell you one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and many of you are going to be familiar with it. And if you are familiar with it, I want to challenge you right from the beginning to approach this text with fresh eyes. You're going to know the story. It's famously titled, The Rich Young Ruler or The Rich Young Man. I believe the story has been so popular in scriptures, Scripture for years and years because the young man asked a very simple yet profound, blunt question that we all want to know the answer to. What was his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't beat around the bush. He speaks very plainly for an answer. It's a question that we all want an answer to. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And yet, the reason I love this story, the response that Jesus gives to him has puzzled not a small amount of people over the years. It is a seemingly easy question to answer, and yet what Jesus says puzzles us. My prayer today as we consider this, that it will be clarifying to you instead of perplexing. Before we read the story of the rich young man, 
We need to take note of what Mark writes just before that passage. Mark's going to give an answer key of sorts of how to understand the passage. So look with me first at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him. People were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Right from the start, we see people, their crowds are bringing little children to Jesus. And as a great teacher, as a priestly figure in his day, the people wanted to bring the children to Jesus so that he would give them a blessing. But what we see is the people are bringing children and the disciples are rebuking them. Now don't bring the children to Jesus. He's, he's too busy. He's too important. The disciples are obeying a cultural norm of the time. Children were not considered highly as they are like today. People weren't, would not ooh and awe over a beautiful baby or a young child. Instead, they were considered as not worthy until they were able to contribute to society. And so the disciples think, what a waste of time to bring these snot-nosed kids to Jesus. But Mark tells us that Jesus became indignant. He's mad that they're preventing the children from coming and Jesus gives two radical statements. Number one, he says, let them come because to ones like these belong the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God is a a topic in scripture, a category in scripture. It has layered meanings, but just for our purposes this morning, the kingdom of God refers to being in God's perfect presence and rule with all of his children. His perfect presence and rule in his place with all of his children. It's like when we say things like going to heaven today. Jesus' statement is, let the lowly considered children come because to such as these belongs the the whole kingdom of God. His second statement is just as radical and similar. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, listen, will not enter it. You guys can get upset at these children coming, but if you don't enter it like these children do, you won't even see the doors of the kingdom. Now, don't make the mistake here of thinking, well, if I just put on childlike virtues and merits, then I'll gain access to God's perfect presence when I die. Like if I just start becoming more childlike in my thinking and in my actions, if I'm just more loving and caring, if I worry less and laugh more and just kind of innocent in my thinking, then I'll just go to heaven. Don't make that mistake. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' point is not that children do meritorious works or they act in some meritorious way which gives them the kingdom of God. 
his point is not to point out the goodness in children, but the evilness in adults. He's not doing that at all. Instead, his point is to illustrate the posture, the, the position, the demeanor of children when they come to him. It's a posture of neediness. It's helplessness, dependency. He's not emphasizing their moral goodness. He says, watch how they come. Watch how dependent and needy they are. That is the posture of the person who will inherit the kingdom of God. If you have children or you've been around children, you know this position of vulnerability, dependence that children often have, especially at a very young age, maybe around one year old, they're, they're kind of toddling around and what is the position oftentimes? Just arms out, right? Just reaching. They, they see something they want and they're reaching for it and if they can't get it, they, they call for daddy or mommy and they're, they're just so dependent. They come to you and they just have their arms up because they want you to pick them up in dependence. There's not arrogance to, there's no arrogance to admit that I don't need assistance. They get there quickly, no doubt. But in very young age, they have no arrogance to, or, or no pride that keeps them from reaching for the parent's help. Jesus says, these inherit the kingdom of God. This posture, those who come needy, dependent, helpless, humble, those who come like children. You may say, well, boy, I, I wish we had a real life example of what it looks like to come needy, dependent to Jesus. And what does it look like to abandon self-sufficiency and instead trust and follow Christ instead? It's one thing for a one-year-old to, to reach for a, a juice cup on the counter and they, he can't reach it, and so he calls for his daddy. But what does it look like in adults to come to Jesus in complete dependence? Well, I present to you the rich young man of verse 17. And what we're gonna see actually is what it looks like when one refuses to come in the posture of childlikeness. Look at verse 17, Mark chapter 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him to Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I'm gonna keep reading but we're gonna, today, we're gonna stop at verse 22. But I want you to see what happens next. 
Verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, do you, do you believe this? He looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Who can be saved? Listen, with man, it is impossible, but all things are possible with God. I am tempted to take a two-week break from Genesis and preach there next week. We don't have time today. We're looking at a, a rich young man who goes to Jesus, and what is the result? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here we see a man kneel before Jesus and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a straightforward question. It's clear. He wants to talk about living forever. Who doesn't want to talk about living forever after you die? Whether you believe in God or not, you hope there's something next. Wouldn't evangelism be so much easier if people just approached you with this question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And see, the reason we struggle with evangelism often is because we, we struggle to figure out how to, how to make the transition from talking about, hey, how you doing? And, you know, did you see that football game? And boy, the weather's nice. And hey, do you know Jesus? Like, wouldn't it be easier if people came to us and said, hey, brother, can you tell me how to have eternal life? And we'd hit the ground running, this is what this man does to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's given Jesus this slow pitch softball, right? Jesus can just knock it out of the park. How can I be saved? What will Jesus respond? Surely it will be something along the lines of repent of your sins and trust in me. Somebody ask you, how do I inherit eternal life? What would you say? Something along the lines of repent of your sins, trust in Christ. Jesus doesn't do that. Notice the text. Instead, Jesus seems to be picky about what the man calls him. Look at verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He swung and missed, or so we think. He didn't tell him the way eternal life. He seems to get picky about the man calling him good. The man says, hey, good teacher. And Jesus says, wait a second. Why are you calling me good? Only God is good. And if God alone is good, doesn't it fit Jesus to be called good? Because the whole point of the gospel of Mark is to answer the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus is God. And so if God alone is good and Jesus is God, then why won't the man, he let him call him good? Just just let it go, Jesus. 
Jesus didn't blow it. Jesus never blows it. Jesus knows what's happening here. Jesus knows that this man has a faulty view of goodness. You catch that? I mean, perhaps some of you in this room have a a faulty view of goodness. Notice the man calls Jesus good teacher, as if Jesus is just some other teacher in the line of a lot of other teachers. Just the next one that he's going to talk to. And then Jesus says, only God is good. In other words, Jesus says, if you think that I'm just another human teacher, just merely human teacher, like everyone else, nothing's different. If, if I'm just that, don't call me good because only God is good. So the category Jesus is establishing in this man's mind is the category of holiness. That is the good that Jesus speaks of here. Jesus says only God is good. Only God is holy, perfectly holy without sin. Only God is perfectly good. So if you think that I'm just another human person, don't call me good because only God is perfectly holy. See, Jesus is helping this man think in terms of moral holiness, spotlessness, sinlessness, meeting a holy standard of a God. Of course, Jesus is good. Of course, Jesus is perfectly spotless and sinless because he is God, but he wants this man to know that. And this man wants to talk about gaining eternal life. And Jesus knows that for the conversation to take place, then this man's mind needs rearranging concerning holiness, moral holiness, namely God's holiness and man's lack of holiness. And see, anytime you talk about eternal life, God, evangelism, the gospel, there has to be a category in place where you're talking about holiness, namely God's holiness and your lack of it. And this is what Jesus is establishing for this man. See, this young man assumes he can have eternal life like the way he is. And he just says, hey, Jesus, tell me what I need to do and I'll just, I'll do it. But Jesus is helping him see that an unholy man cannot be with a holy God. And we can't talk about eternal life without talking about holiness. Why? Why? Because there's a sin issue that God cannot be with unless it's dealt with. What keeps us from God? It's our sinfulness. A sin issue that we need addressed. And this is why Jesus is addressing this here first. You want to talk about eternal life and you want to call me good, let's talk about goodness. But Jesus still hasn't answered his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has just simply been deconstructing this man's idea of good. But now that, now that he's there, now surely Jesus will give him the answer. So you're not good, so repent of your sin and trust in me. Surely he will do that, right? He doesn't do that. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. What is he doing? 
Which of you would have someone say, can you tell me how to have eternal life? Which of you would go listing the law? Do this, do that, do this, do that. Like, hopefully none of you would. Jesus does. We think, did he blow this again? How do I gain eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't defraud. Does Jesus not know, Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no man will be justified? What in the world is going on? Didn't Jesus just say only God is good and now he's telling the man to keep the commandments, insinuating that his keeping the commandments would be earning goodness? Why is he doing this? See, many have gotten to this point, exactly where I am right now, and they have concluded, see, this man wants eternal life, and Jesus very very clearly says, well, obey the law. And then they infer from this passage that man is able to earn eternal life by obeying the law. If only man will be good, if only he will keep the commandments, then he will inherit eternal life. This is what it seems to be saying here. Jesus says, you know the commandments. You want life? Keep the law. Obey the rules. Be a good person. That's not what Jesus is saying. So what do we do? Like, hopefully you feel like, what do we do with this text? I mean, it looks like Jesus says that. Jesus is still teaching this man about holiness and man's lack of it. He's demonstrating to the man that God's law shows him to be a sinner. The man has not kept the law of God. The man may have not physically murdered someone, but Jesus talks about anger in someone's heart being very similar. The man may not have committed physical adultery, but Jesus says you lust after a woman in your heart, then you have. See, this man comes to Jesus And he thinks he's good. He thinks he's got it all correct. And Jesus is just deconstructing everything. He lays out the commands here in order to show the man how unholy he really is, how sinful he has been before God. See, alarms should be going off in this man's head when Jesus says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother. Alarms should be going off. The man should be feeling conviction of, man, I'm not living up to that. I'm not doing that. Like, I don't meet that standard. But verse 20 shows the man's not tracking with Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't get it. He misses the point. Look what he says. Teacher, all these I have kept for my youth. Like, that is a staggering response. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear fraud. Yeah, I'm good, Jesus. Like, I've checked all those boxes. What's next? I love verse 21. And Jesus looking at him loved him. Can you imagine this man hearing the commandments of Jesus in prideful arrogance, even if he's deceived in his arrogance, says, hey, I'm good. And Jesus looked at him. (laughs) Are you kidding me? And he loved him. How long do we go? How long did you go? In denial of God, in self-righteousness, thinking you had it all together and God just looked at you and loved you 
and drawed you to himself and showed you a lack of holiness, a holiness that can only be found in Jesus. This man is blinded by self-righteousness. He's comparing his holiness to what he can see in his fellow man. You know, as long as we do this, as long as I'm not bad as them, I'm okay. Well, you know, I, I didn't do that. That's really bad. I'm, I'm good on those things, Jesus. Tell me what's next. Jesus doesn't give the commandments so the man can check them off his list. This is supposed to, me, supposed to make the man see he hasn't kept the commandments. This is one purpose of the law, to point out, hey, we haven't met its standard. Jesus looks at him. He loves him. You can just imagine Jesus pausing as he considers that this man thinks he's kept the commandments and Jesus loves him. And now Jesus is going to get to the heart of the matter. No more dodging, playing games. Let's get to the heart. It's like Jesus says, this man might think he has kept the commandments. And I'll, I'll just go with that for now. But now I'm going to put my finger on what he really struggles with. The one that he can't easily check off the list. Doesn't the Spirit of God always have the way of putting his finger on exactly what we need pointing out. He brings conviction to that, that one area that you think's hidden away. We put on our best holiness and show our good to-do list and he lovingly shines the light on the one area of darkness and he says, what about that? Verse 21. You lack one thing, young man. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he, the young man, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, when the Spirit shines a light on an idol, what you covet most, you do one of two things. You either run as fast as you can away from it, clinging to what you love, or you bow in repentance in light of God's grace. If the young man would have sold everything he had had, it wasn't that in and of itself that would earn him justification before God. What Jesus is doing here is pointing out, young man, you may think you have it all together, but you're lacking this. You're holding on to this, clinging to this, refusing to forsake this, and come to trust in me. What area perhaps is the Spirit putting his finger on today with you, saying, you may fool yourself in self-righteousness, but we both know you lack one thing, and it is this. His call is to repent or be hardened. We can't worship God and money, God and fame, God and possessions, God and comfort. We cannot serve two masters. Jesus puts his finger on the man's idol and the man said, you know what? I'd prefer to keep that. See, all of a sudden, 
eternal life wasn't that important anymore. Jesus loved him enough to shine a light on his darkness. This is what Jesus does. He, he comes, the Spirit shines a light on our darkness, in our sin, and in the moment of that, in, in that moment, like as you're hearing the gospel presentation right now, we decide, do I love the sin more than I love Jesus? Do you want eternal life? The young man asked the question. He wanted it. Do you remember what Jesus said about receiving eternal life, receiving the kingdom like children? Helpless, needy, dependent. That was the young man's problem. He came to Jesus. He wasn't helpless. I mean, look at all my stuff. Not needy. Jesus, I've, I've done it all right. Not dependent. You know, I haven't murdered, I haven't lied, I haven't cheated, I haven't lusted. Yeah, yeah, I've kept all that stuff from when I was young. What else do you require? I've handled those things just fine. See, he didn't come needy. What do I need Jesus for? Looks like I'm keeping the commandments. Would you come needy to Christ today? Do you even see a need for him today? Has God put a light and, on sinfulness that, and a need for a savior in your heart? See, Christianity is not a religion that says God helps those who help themselves. Christianity is about the needy, people coming to God and saying, God, if, if you don't work, if you don't save, I will be a wretched man for the rest of my life is who I am. I'm not sufficient in myself. He didn't come dependent. You mean follow you after I let go of my stuff? Rely on you instead of my wealth? No thanks, I'll, I'll hang on to it. See, Jesus answered the man's question, but it wasn't what he wanted to hear. Why? He wanted to hear an answer that would allow him to hold on to this as well. Jesus says, this is the very opposite of repentance. It's, it's forsaking the old life, forsaking sin, letting go of it, and turning to Christ as the greater and more treasurable possession. This is the answer to the man's question. Jesus is shining a light on it. How can I inherit eternal life? Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've broken God's law. That without God saving you, you're a helpless child in sin against a perfect and holy God whose justice demands punishment against sinners. Cry out to God as the needy and helpless sinner that I don't have it all together, that I have broken your law. If you were to list all the commandments in Scripture, I could name each one of them of how I've broken them before your holy character. I need a savior to stand on my behalf who would stand in my place when I stood condemned, not self-sufficient. It's one of the hardest things we can do, right? To, to let go of, you know, we're individuals, we're self-sufficient. It doesn't fly with the gospel. Coming to Jesus is coming to depend on him and not ourselves. So we forsake these things and we turn to him 
We put our faith and our trust and dependence in him that what Jesus did on the cross, why did he die? For sins. But we have to think, was it for my sin? Do I believe that? Did I deserve to die for that? And we say, yes, absolutely. And Jesus, this is why I'm thankful you did. Coming to Jesus is admitting that you don't measure up to the law, but he does, and he died to pay for the times you didn't. This takes humility, this takes brokenness, sincere trust, outstretched arms, and dependence on God to do what you can't do yourself. It takes childlike dependency. Make no mistake, Jesus is not telling this man you can have eternal life if you'll just keep this and do that and honor this. Jesus is saying, look, look how you fall short and look how I am standing in your place. Trust me, follow me. I want to close with one of my favorite stories of conversion. It's one that displays the simplicity of coming to Christ like a child. It's the conversion story of the famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's good enough to read. He describes his conversion like this, quote, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and in despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a side street and I came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there were, may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister didn't come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort went into the pulpit to preach. Now, it was well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There I was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is very simple text indeed. It says, look. He said, now looking doesn't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. Again, the preacher's still preaching. He says, but then the text says, look unto me. He said, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourself. Some say, look to God, the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ that says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text 
in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating drops of great blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I will rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Parentheses, I think this thin Methodist missed his calling. It sounds pretty good to me. Spurgeon says, when he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all of my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had never been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as, the, as only primitive Methodists could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Charles Spurgeon said, I once, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with the one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, how I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. The moment I saw the sun, I could have risen with that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ, the simple faith which looks to him alone. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you will be saved. It was, no doubt, all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. He said that happy day when I found the Savior and learned to cling to his dear feet was a day never to be forgotten by me. He went on to be called the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest preachers the world's ever known. Look to Christ, not to self, not in what I've done, not in checking the list. What has Christ done in redemptive work for you? Do you trust it? Do you believe it? That is the way to inherit eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That's the appropriate words. Thank you. That you gave us Christ to look at. Just as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, if anyone would look to the Son of Man lifted up, he would be saved. Father, would you give eyes right now to look? Oh, how wonderful the call is to look to Christ for salvation. And the Spirit blows wherever He wishes. I cannot see it. I cannot see its effects, but we, we see His work. Lord, blow your Spirit in this room. 
Give, a belie- give believers assurance today. Remind them of the beauty of the moment when they look and they saw Christ, not just as some good human teacher, but remind them of the time when they saw him as the glorious lamb slaughtered in their place. For others who have never seen Jesus in this life, light, Lord, would you peel back the scale from the eyes? Lord, this is a work that only you can do that while sinners may be in this room right now and they're hearing the voice of me right now saying, look to Christ. The reality is they're dead in their sin and it wouldn't happen unless you make So in your sovereign power, according to your plan and good purposes, would you make people alive and cause them to see the beauty and glory of Christ? Thank you for our eternal life that we have in him. In Christ's name, amen.